Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Theodore, or as they call him out here on the streets, Teddy Sweet, who is a lawyer slash veterans advocate who specializes in helping displaced military veterans obtain their veterans benefits. If you are a veteran struggling with PTSD or trying to get mental health services or benefits, this is the episode you want to listen to. Let's jump into the episode with Teddy Sweet. Uh, I'm excited to have you on because I, I know one of your passion projects, and, and, and tell me if that's uh, undermining it, calling it a passion project, but something that you're really passionate about is the lowering the veteran suicide rate. You're part of Project 22. Um, and can you tell us what that's about? Well, Project 22, yes. Uh, thank you for having me, first off. And Project 22 is a, a culmination of a couple of things, one of which is lowering the veteran suicide rate. It's also, um, a, it's also a larger byproduct of getting benefit veterans the benefits they deserve. And one of those issues comes down with uh, veterans' disability and veterans' claims, of which uh, ties into the veteran suicide rate because uh, Project 22, just to elaborate on what it is, it's, a out, out, it's kind of like an outbirth of Profile Soldier, which is the nonprofit that I lead. And what Project 22 is, is going to 22 major cities around the U.S. that have a high veteran population, me contacting about 40 to 50 veterans and not tracking them, i.e. the way the VA would do or the way you would do, like, let's say, with COVID-19 with, uh, you know, with tracking individuals for symptoms and so forth. What I'm trying to do is give individuals either a cell phone and an email address and what I want to do is, and these are going to be primarily homeless veterans who have not really received any of the veterans' benefits they richly deserve. I, I want these individuals to apply for apply for VIP benefits, and then later on give them a cell phone and an email address, with the goal of one year later reaching out to them and having them answer the phone, i.e., not being part of the veteran suicide rate and hopefully being in a better place in life. That's holistically what I'm trying to do, you know? And what I want that to do, uh, in September 2022, the VA did a homeless report, which talked about a lot of the statistics and markers and um, I will say uh, theories that govern veteran suicide and so forth and so on. And I want this, my research, to be a part of that uh, particular re uh, report when it's produced in September 2023, because I'm always been aware of a famous statement that says, change does not come, change in the government comes from without, from outside the government. And sometimes we have to work with our government partners, NGOs, individuals such as yourself who have large platforms in helping the government and the body politic go in a direction of making America what it should be. 
And that is, in a nutshell, not to be too verbose, what I'm trying to do. Uh, it, 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 it's a powerful thing that you're doing. And I love this idea of giving them a cell phone and an email address and with the intention of reaching out to them, following up, and also with the idea of making sure that they're receiving the benefits that they are entitled to because we know that uh, financial struggle, financial worry, uh, feeling like you're in a place of financial ruin, that could you know tip someone over the edge to wanting to end their life. Uh, but I also love this idea of using a cell phone to just follow up and say, hey, you know, it's not, you know, it wasn't a one and done you being through this program. Like we are following up because we really care about you as a person. There's so much research that shows that following up with a phone call, an email, a postcard, a letter, uh, four to five months later really makes a difference in saving someone's life and letting them know that they weren't just uh, another number or body coming through the services that you really care and have thought about them. Uh, what led you down this path, Ted? Well, in 2008 to 2010, um, I, had, I, was, uh, I had a job as the executive director of the Office on Ex-Offender Affairs, now named Office of Returning Citizens. It's basically an office that deals with individuals who were previously incarcerated, be it they came from jail, five-day stint, or five-year stint from prison, or from what we call a halfway house, Bureau of Prisons, where you're halfway in, halfway out. And I, I, I took the job because me and a colleague of mine, uh, well, he was a, you know, fellow African-American attorney, class of 2002. I graduated from Vermont Law School. He graduated from George Washington University. He had got let go, but I was the deputy at first, and I wanted to basically learn some of the systems and then become the director of Veterans Affairs. But I ended up being kept in that capacity. And you know how sometimes things happen where you don't really determine the direction of your life, the, you know, and that's what happened with me. And in this capacity, I dealt with individuals who were very marginalized, you know, because a lot of times people felt that there should not be an office for returning citizens due to the fact that these are individuals who had an aspect of criminality in their past and, and they felt they should not have any kind of services. But me being a Christian, I don't believe a person is reprobate. I think everybody has value. and and in, 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 in the process of working with these individuals, I, I was awarded uh, a national best practice by the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And what it was, I had a giant map in my office, and I would always have the individuals come in my office and say, hey, where do you get food from? Where do you get housing from? Where do you get uh, tokens from? all the things that an individual who was destitute would get, you know, where can you get a shower at? And they would have, and I would have uh, stickums, you know, yellow stickum pads. And I had a giant, uh, I had a giant map of Washington DC in my office. And I ended up having this thing populated with stickums and, you know, yellow stickum pads, pink stickum pads, what, what have you. And then I, partnered with Octo, the Office of Chief Technology Office, and 
they sent two geospatial analysts with me and they kind of like uh, walked with me and so forth and so on to my meetings and got my guidance on how I wanted the site set up. And lo and behold, I sent it to the U.S. Conference of Mayors and it was given a GPS, this was in 2009, a GPS best practice. And now the things are mainstream. So what I found out is, is that I could not have won this best practice if I had done it on my own intellect and so forth and so on. My intellect was wanting. I needed intellect from people who are out in the field, out and about. And so juxtaposition of that is, is like in the military, you have the people in the Pentagon, the decision makers, but then you have the soldiers in the field who are actually doing the work. And they say the condition in the battlefield. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm actually going into the streets and so forth of these major cities, contacting these veterans and so forth, bringing back what they say to me and what I, and what I perceive and then putting that in the report and submitting that to the Department of Veterans Affairs as a recommendation, not saying it's going to be awarded the best practice or anything, but my main goal is I, I want to make sure that everybody I contact at the beginning of the journey, I contact them one year later and they be well and alive and doing and doing okay because one of the uh, aspects of my job in 2008 to 2010 with the mayor's office was we would have a sign-in sheet. In Leo, one of the main things I wanted to make sure was is that I was one of the government officials that would receive the police blotter report in the morning. It was a report on who was murdered, who was apprehended. You know, it, it would have all the criminal justice statistics on there. And I wanted to do two things. I wanted to look at my intake form of the prior days. And I wanted to make sure that nobody that came in my office was on that police blotter, blotter report. And that's how I could determine that my office was successful. And this was very challenging because this was at a time when Mothers Against Drunk Driving and a lot of advocacy groups against criminals uh, or against people who had criminal justice issues were out there pounding the pavement and using the bully pulpit to make sure that these individuals were punished and so forth. But like I said, I saw a redeeming quality and I think I want to try to catch lightning in a bottle twice again now in 2023 when I go out to these particular cities and, and engage the veteran population. Because the Department of Veterans Affairs, as you well know, is not a secret, has a bad reputation sometimes in how they help their veterans. And like I had said before, one of the things that you have to do or one of the things that has been demonstrated is changing the government comes from without outside the government. Me being a veteran, you know, I was born into a military family. My father spent 30 years into the military. So I, I spent nine years, I spent 18 as a military brat, nine as a, uh, as an active duty soldier. So that's 27 years in the last 29 years I spent as a veteran and I've run the gambit of all the emotions and so forth that one can have. As uh, when I graduated in 2002, 
as a lawyer, I, I, I was claustrophobic. And that's something that I'd like to like to talk about. Uh, a lot of times people talk about PTSD and some of the other diagnoses that you can get from being in the military, PTSD being the main one. But a lot of times you can come out of the military and you can have a, a condition and you may not want to say anything about it. And I'm an advocate of being very forthcoming and so forth because I lived about from 1994 to 2011 in denial that I that I even had you know a condition. I knew I was claustrophobic and so forth, but when I did, it was like a freeing element. And that's one of the things I would like to make. Part of Project 22 also is, is the normalization of mental health conditions. A lot of times they say they use the word mental illness and, and they give it acronyms that give it stigmatization. But I think one thing that, to, that COVID-19 showed everybody is, is that if you're hearing my voice and you got ears and, and mind and tongue and so forth and so on, Everybody on the planet Earth has a mental health condition of some kind, whether it's positive, negative, neutral, if you will. And that in, 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 in that recent thing that is in our rearview mirror, thank God COVID-19 showed us that. Absolutely. And, and there's so many things I want to highlight that you mentioned. One is you, you talked about... Um, having claustrophobia and how that can impact you. Can you take us a little deeper into how that affected you on a day-to-day -day basis and what steps you took to manage that? And, and I want to highlight it because, you know, for you to have spent so much time in the military and then to go on and get your law degree and now be a practicing lawyer, a lot of people who come out the military aren't able to make those transitions and then to to thrive on the other side. And here you are, you came out with claustrophobia and now then you went went ahead and grabbed yourself a law degree. Walk us through that. Okay. Well, when I came out of the military, one of the reasons if you know, I want to try to be humble, you know, thank you for the compliment. But one of the reasons why I got a law degree is because my military service led me to that through exemption. What I mean by that is, is that I was a weapons expert and a logistician when I was in the military. In other words, I was the one that gave everybody the M16, which in a civilian world is commonly known as the AR-15. And... When I got out of the military, I didn't want to have nothing to do with weapons anymore. I touched them all the time. I shot them all the time. I helped people qualify with them. I was a custodian, meaning I was the one that kept the weapons under lock and key. And that's how I got claustrophobia. When I was in Erzurum, Turkey, which was the equivalent of Siberia for individuals as far as uh, the so former Soviet Union, Russia, you know, it was the most desolate, remote tour in the U.S. Army, and I was in Erzurum, Turkey, where we actually had nuclear weapons. I got locked in the arms room by mistake for a period of about 15 to 20 minutes, and that's how I came about having claustrophobia. 
But what happened was when you get out the military, they talk about transitioning and a lot of the jobs that you do inside the military, you cannot do outside the military. And so my path led down criminal justice route. And then I went into, went to law school. But one of the things that kind of like uh, hurt me was not taking advantage of the law. In other words, I was so scared of being stigmatized or described as being disabled as as an attorney it kind of hurt me into into becoming an attorney and one of the things i'm talking about is like passage of the bar and things of this nature because of my claustrophobia and agoraphobia panic anxiety the bar exam is given twice a year once in july and once in february and it's done at the same time nationwide that way some person in california can't take the bar and then call me i call leo and say leo guess what this is going to be on there this is the same time they take it in san diego the same time they take it in tampa or chicago or cincinnati wherever you are in the country and it's done in a windowless room and it's done under extreme environments and so when you look at it though that that was a perfect recipe for someone like me failing the bar because of my mental condition. And so I did that only when I sat there and told them that, hey, look, I have this condition. And then the American with Disabilities Act, which provides for individuals like me to have accommodations, which is much like an individual who can't walk, having a wheelchair ramp versus navigating through stairs, I was able to get by the bar. So even though I was college educated, a lawyer, my society's outlook on individuals that have a mental health condition, whether it's a cognitive mental health condition like uh, schizophrenia or a non-cognitive one like claustrophobia, it still falls under that stigma. You got a mental health condition. And so what ended up happening was I didn't take advantage of a law which lawyers are supposed to take advantage of and it was hurting me not helping me so now i i've done commercials for pentagon federal credit union nationwide talking about mental health month and talking about the normalization of mental health in general and what i mean by normalization is if you're feeling depressed or you're feeling down or if you're feeling overwhelmed and so forth and so on, it's okay to say something about it. Because if you have a sore throat or a headache or your arm hurt, your leg hurt, you got your upset bowels, you don't have any problem going to the doctor. You don't have any problem telling your workplace uh, supervisor and so forth that you have these issues and so so on. But when it comes to the mental health conditions, it seems to be it seems to be maligned because you can't see them. It's the invisible, it's the invisible injury. And I'll give you a perfect example. I remember taking an elevator. I can't take an elevator. I can jump out of an airplane, but I can't take an elevator by myself. So picture that. And sometimes I will sit there and I will wait until an individual comes onto the elevator and then I go on with them, press the button after them and so forth and so on. So I lived a life 
and that was in secret. But now when I sit there and I tell a person, hey, I'm claustrophobia, can you can you ride up with me? It's a freeing thing and it's humbling and it and it and it uh it's kind of like your guest. I, I'm a fan of your show. I listen to it all the time. I think Miss Renee Mills was talking about it yesterday or a day before your emotional regulation, emotional intelligence. You know, you got to know what you got to be able to do to get by and make it through the day. And I think that's a phrase that you had coined. Do whatever you take to make it through the day. And I think that is very, very, very appropriate. And that's one of the basis of my uh, research in Project 22. A lot of things aren't going to come. A lot of new um, theories or advances, that's the word I want to use, advances, aren't going to come out of academia. I think it's going to come out of the podcast world. You know, people like yourself. I'm a fan of Rogan. I'm a fan of other individuals. I think that this medium provides individuals a dissemination of information freely without uh, without being without confinement without confinement right you know? it's kind of like the wild west right now with podcasts because i can have any guest on i'm not beholden to any corporate entities uh, you know, I'm not controlled by ad money. I mean, some podcasts are like, you know, Joe Rogan's at a level now where there there is some influence depending right. on uh, who's sponsoring his podcast. But yeah, you're right. Like the, the dissemination of information uh, allows so many thoughts and ideas to be brought forth and for us to grasp on them. And one of the ideas that you brought up earlier, um, you talked about this destigmatizing of mental illness or, or mental health so that we can ask for the help that we need. And I you know, you being a lawyer, I have a the question that I've ha had brought to me from other uh, veterans is they fear that if they receive help for their mental health, for their depression, for their PTSD is going to go on their record and it's going to affect some of the jobs that they can receive. I, I, uh, specifically, one, I remember I had an Uber driver, and he said that there were different levels of PTSD, and depending on what level you were diagnosed with, that would determine if you could you know, work with people publicly, if you can drive an Uber for somebody. Can you speak to that? Can, I mean, is there any uh, uh, substance to those fears of if I get diagnosed with a certain thing, it's going to limit my work, limit my pay, et cetera, et cetera. Beautiful, beautiful question. And I'm going to answer it by answering it kind of in a technical way that a lot of people probably wouldn't think I would answer it in, but it's because of the work I do. The veterans, it, it is. PTSD does have a stigmatization to it that is without without a doubt uh and i just give you some background on ptsd when rambo first blood came out the diagnosis that they wanted to give him but wasn't even out yet or hadn't manifested itself into a word was ptsd 
they call them they call them you know um, a whole bunch of different things shell shocked and so forth and so on there's a whole bunch of derogatory terms for it but the man john rambo had ptsd but i'm going to say something to my veterans out there that's going to help them get their benefits and it deals with ptsd and deals with suicide and so forth and so on the code of federal regulations states that we should receive military benefits if we happen to be disabled upon our duties as active duty soldiers one of the diagnoses that will get you the fabled 100%, which is 100% permanent and total, and it can give you pretty much uh, a decent retirement and so forth, about $4,000 a year, free education, free healthcare, free dental, free vision. The, the main benefit or the main disability claim you can put in is mental claim, because the mental claim is can go as high as 70% of that 100%. A lot of times they want you to put PTSD, but 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 to, but for PTSD to be validated, you need three things. We call it the Calusa Triangle. One is an event in the military in which the PTSD supposedly originated. That could be stepping on a landmine. That could be a car accident. That can be you know witnessing a death. Two current day symptoms you know, agitation, depression, fear, anger. And then three, what they call a nexus, which is a doctor's statement or your own statement connecting your military time where you where the in, injury was birthed and your current symptoms. The DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, which the military uses, Department of Veterans Affairs use, we own issue number five, DSM-5, states that whether you have depression, PTSD, MST, um, military sexual trauma, they're all rated the same. So my veterans out there, you don't have to claim PTSD because a lot of times when you claim PTSD, it puts you in what the streets call a proverbial trick bag. And what I mean by that is, is that you have to have validation that that incident happened to you. And a lot of times we don't carry around cameras recording everything that happens to us. And a lot of times we're apt not to report everything that happens to us. That's the reason why I'm going to go later on and tell you what profile soldier, the, the meaning of that, of my organization means. So PTSD, I would say if you're depressed, state you have depression, the VA can go ahead and rate you for depression, and you can go ahead and get the same benefits. You get uh, 70% for PTSD and 70% for depression. It all goes to the aggregate or the total claim in which you're going to get paid because that's what, at the end of the day, what counts. There's a thing called Baker Act, basically meaning that if you uh, talk to a mental health counselor or a health practitioner or primary care physician, and you say that you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt someone else, they have the duty of reporting that to the authorities, which is police. And when they can come and apprehend you in a, in a, in a mental health field, we call that being Baker Act. And that's if you say that you have suicidal tendencies tendencies or homicidal tendencies the question will be kind of like a blackjack question i deal two jacks to you what do you do you split them and the question is do you plan on hurting yourself 
or do you plan on hurting someone else? The way to answer that question is, no, I don't plan on doing none of those things, but I do think about how it may be if I'm not here. The last part of what I just said will get you 70% on your claim because it's a suicidal ideation, which means you're thinking about suicide without actively planning it. You're just thinking about it, but you're not actively planning it. That means you're not doing anything that's going towards affording or furtherance of hurting yourself. So that's something that I would like to tell my veterans, you know, that they, they should do. And another thing, uh, Leo, that the military does, uh, what the Veterans Affairs Office does, which I think is, I don't like it because it happened to me. And I can speak on this because in law, we have what we call hearsay evidence. That means someone said something that you heard it. I'm not going by anything hearsay. Everything I'm saying on this show is firsthand. And how I got indoctrinated into the, middle, into the mental health system, it was in Baltimore, Maryland, for mental health. First off, it's on, I think it's on the seventh floor. So if you have to go to the seventh floor, they say, oh, you have to go to the seventh floor. There's a stigmatization because you know that's where the Department of Mental Health is, the Clinic of Mental Health. So there's a stigmatization there. But then when you go in there and they do the intake, the intake is done in a group manner, which I feel is ridiculous because you have about 10 people at a table around a table, some of them being female, male, and so forth. And then almost analogous to a narcotic anonymous or alcoholic anonymous meeting, they ask you, what is your situation? And there you have to verbalize, articulate to the whole group why you're there. I think it's in violation of HIPAA. I think that it's in violation of self-decency. And so you'll go around the table and you will sit there and you'll briefly say why you're trying to engage the VA for mental health benefits or mental health treatment, I mind you. You have women that, or men, who possibly had been molested or, or sexually accosted, you know, like for the ladies, uh, very underreported uh, claim is military sexual trauma. And the reason for that is males usually are the perpetrator. And when you report it to the chain of command, you're reporting it more likely to another man who reminds you of the man that probably, you know, accosted you. So it's almost like reliving the same incident. And at the end of the session, Malcolm, uh, uh, excuse me, Leo, they'll go like this. They will say to you, do you want to further go through treatment either solo or in a group setting? Almost invariably, everybody say, I want to go solo. If not, them leaving already by saying, you know, forget this mess, I'm out of here. You know, and that's how the v Veterans Affairs Office intakes people for mental health treatment. It's not done like that if you have an arm injury. It's not done like that if you have an abdominal injury. But it's done like that for mental health. And I think it's, it's asinine. I think, I think it's ridiculous. And I think what it does is it keeps a lot of individuals from receiving treatment because one of the main things you do not want to do, especially at first, 
you don't want to tell anybody about your system. And then next, you know, after that, there's the medication, there's the counseling, both of which I, I have now and I outright admit it. And that's something that when you, you first engage the system, that's that's one of the things that you don't want to do. You you don't want to end up having your you, you like the medication. You don't want to end up having your mind altered because you feel like I don't want to take this medication and so on and so forth. And I can understand that because I I felt the same way. But at the same time, you need it. And then you don't want it to be talking to counselors because you don't want to end up having a record of, oh, if I sit there and I talk to the counselors, now I can sit there and say that I had a mental health issue and now it's documented and so forth and so on. I think one of the most freeing things is, is to be able to talk to somebody and to have somebody say, no, no pun intended, me too. The same thing has happened to me before. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that last part about the whole me too and same thing has happened before. So I'm assuming that the person you're talking to, the, the counselor, is a former military vet who can relate to some of you know your experiences. And because my next question was going to be, how did you select the counselor or therapist that you are currently speaking with? I think, and I'm asking this because a lot of people are seeking out therapists or want to seek out someone to talk to, and they're not quite sure how to pick the person how, what it should feel like, what the thoughts are going in. Um, if you can share and enlighten us on some of those, on some of that. Well, here's the thing. And, and that is an outstanding, like I said, another fabulous question, because it's very important that you do get a good partner. And I say partner because a lot of times a good therapist, they say they're in a battle with you. Uh, analogy they like to draw is say you're in a in the bottom of a of a pit and they're at the top of the pit and they got a rope well they want to jump in the pit with you and help both of you come out of the pit they don't want to just sit there and talk to you from the top of the pit while you're at the bottom so that's you know that's you know the kind of counselors that I've had and one of the things that uh they've done and i'm not saying anything political because you know i can say i'm a democrat and so forth and so on but the previous administration did something very good and and, and i would be remiss if i didn't say it where they allow us veterans to go out in the community and get uh, a um, position of our choice where the military the va flipped the bill for it and that was started under uh the, the previous administration and that's one thing that i i feel that is very good you know i give you know i i think that's a good thing and it's called community care and the reason for that is is there's only a minute amount of psychologists that are actually wearing white coats that are veterans affairs employees so they have a lot of individuals that are in the community that can service you know, us veterans. And, and it can be done because we represent seven to eight percent of the U.S. population and only about half of us get treatment. So there there's enough of psychologists on the outside to take care of us. 
And sometimes you can sit there and you can talk to individuals, you know, like if you're Irish or if you have a certain ethnicity, religious ideology and so forth and so on, you want someone who is, you know, who practices Islam, who might be a, 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 a psychologist, you can do that because there's a, there's a marriage or there's sometimes uh, there's certain things that you might subscribe to religiously that someone who's secular may not subscribe to. So you might want to have someone of your own faith or your own skin color and so forth and so on. So the VA allows for all of that. And I'm, I'm going to say that is a great thing they do. You know, uh, I have a current, my current psychologist uh, counselor that I speak to is magnificent. They allow you to switch if needed so you don't have to stay with the same one that, you know, and, and it's not a knock on the doctor. It's not a knock on you. It's a knock on finding a good combination. And I can just tell you um, the VA, once you get involved in it, and once you know all the nuances on it, their mental health care is, is top notch. But one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I'm not being paid by the VA, the VA, I'm not, you know, I say a lot of things negative about the VA, and I say a lot of things positive. I'm not beholden to the VA in no way, shape, or form. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to let people know that the more you know about your health care choices, the better choices you can make and a better, in, in, in a better, um, outcomes you can have because a lot of times uh i can just give you a perfect example you might have a mental health counselor and so forth and you're looking in your wallet and you're finding yourself short funds and you don't but you have a computer you can do telehealth like me and you are talking right now instead of having to go out and catch a an uber or catch a bus or catch a metro or walk you know and compromise your physical condition you know, to, to make a visit. They want to try to make it where it's easy for you, where it's easy for the veteran because the whole purpose of them being there is not a doctor-led service, it's a patient-led service and the patient being the veteran. So you can, if you can shop for your physician, much like you would shop for a vehicle. That's beautiful. And one of the things you brought up earlier was that you yourself are taking medications. And I know a lot of people might be hesitant to take medication because they might be struggling with addiction. And the last thing that they want to do is to start taking another medication to do with their mental health out of fear that they might become addicted to it. What were some of the challenges, if any, that you've experienced while taking the meds? And how did you navigate through that? I navigated through it. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I remember when Michael Jackson died, I cried. I'm a lover of music, but I love Prince more than Michael Jackson. When Prince passed away, I thought I should have cried, but I was on sertraline and Xanax at the time. And I had one of the things they have is they have a, a dull effect, uh, you know, and so I found myself 
not being able to cry. And I felt funny about it. And I was talking to the doctor and he said, I said, Prince died last night and they had painted the whole per the whole downtown DC was purple, Leo. Was painted purple. And I sat there and I said, respect due, because this man deserves it. But at the same time, I was sitting there and I said, I couldn't cry. I couldn't emotionally, you know, I, I knew I was going to, you know, cry, but I, I, I couldn't. And so I sat there and I was like, okay. And so that was a time for me to tweak my medication. There was another time, like I told you, I worked with probation and parole. And there was a significant position that came up for to be the deputy director of a major federal agency here in DC that deals with probation and parole. I won't say the name of the agency, but I sat on the board of, of local and federal officials where the deputy director of this agency was my co-chair. So I knew it back and forth. It was almost like I was, it's like if you were interviewing for a job saying, okay, the job you're interviewing for Leo is being Leo Flowers. That's pretty much, I was doing something that I knew like the back of my hand, but I had to take the seventh floor to get there. Remember that, and I can't take elevators. So the first time I took Xanax, they say you take it whenever you per perceive, you know, you're being nervous or whatever. So I had, I, had, I had been prescribed it. So I took a Xanax and I went from the first floor to the seventh floor. And I had took this Xanax before I got on the elevator. An hour later, I was, you know, your first time taking Xanax, I was kind of like, I was kind of like out of it, lethargic and so forth. And I know they were probably saying, is this the guy that we were talking so heavily about? You know, Mr. Sweet, he's dang, barely coherent, <laughs> you know? And I was sitting there and I was like, so that that was one of those situations where you live and learn, but you got to know how you know, know how to take your medication and you can't come on and off of it. And so now I'm taking medication and here's what I say to people out there. And, and one of the main reasons people have this is because what I'm saying right now, you couldn't pay me any amount of money 10 years ago to say this, but I'm freed. And I, I say it now because I know that it does something that's, that's for a benefit of someone else other than me, in which I think that's the whole purpose of, in, you know, uh, education, knowledge, or whatever, help someone other than yourself. Veterans, vets, if you out there, soldier, listen. Your mental health condition means like there's your cortisol levels and so forth and so on, the chemicals in your brain, they are different because of the service that you went in. We don't do normal stuff when we go into the military. We do abnormal stuff. And so the whole purpose of that medication is to get your stuff regulated, you know, so that you can be operating at a premium level, at a good level, at a level in which you're operating naturally. So it's a funny thing, but you're actually taking a foreign substance so that you can operate in a more natural level, even though what you're putting in your body is unnatural. But, and if you're a Christian like I am or Islamic, remember 
in the Bible and the Quran, physicians are mentioned. And God created physicians. So God created physicians and they created scientists. They created these medications and you can take them. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with them. I just gave you two examples where I couldn't even, you know, honor a musician that I held in high regard because naturally I was, you know, out of whack. And and the same thing with trying to garner a job. Uh, I, I had taken Xanax and it got to the point where it was, you know, it kind of like uh, overwhelmed me. Well, now we all have to know what your favorite Prince song is. Oh my goodness, this is a great question. I would say two songs, International Lover, and then When Doves Cry because it didn't have a bass track and it became number one and it knocked off, uh, in 1984, it knocked off two greats from the top of the mountain and that was Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson, probably one of the most prolific year, years in music history. Uh, the fact that you knew that it didn't have a bass track tells me that you're a true fan of Prince and that you even knew like what songs it knocked off. I mean, that <laughs> I, I don't even want to know. I, I feel like your, your house is colored purple or something like that. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know how deep this goes. Um, it, you know, one of the things I've, I performed for the, for military troops in Turkey, actually Egypt, um, I did some shows in Pakistan, but not for the troops. And one of the things I was overhearing was not only the trauma caused from being in the military, but a lot of people go into the military with trauma. They come from abusive backgrounds, uh, alcohol, drugs. What advice or thoughts do you have on how a person should prepare themselves before even going into the military so that when they get out, the transition is a bit smoother. And I don't know if you can even answer. I mean, that's such a complicated oh, no. question, but. No, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can definitely uh, address that. And I'm going to make a very bold statement because I know. The military understands what is going on with us. Like, in other words, when you go into the military, you go through a thing called MEPS, Military Entrance Processing Station. This is where you get your pre-military physical, where they say whether or not your eyes are good, whether your flat feet can go ahead and give you interest into the military. It's where you do your pre-physical. They check you out like this. Listen to what I'm about to say, Leo. They check you out like a used car like a used car, a CarMax car. Everything is noted. But when you exit the military, they treat you like a new car. They don't want to know what's wrong with you. And it's all about a three-card molly. It's like, okay, you got to go ahead and get your medical records. You got to request your, mel you got to request your mel medical records after you get out. What? They can do something very simple. They can just provide you with a floppy disk like back in the day where they can provide you with an email uh, uh, email where they can just go ahead and 
give you a soft copy of your records. But the thing about it is they don't give you a copy of your records. And one of the main barriers between soldiers getting their military benefits is having a copy of the records. And the way they portray it is these aren't your records, soldier. These are our records because you're military property when you're in the military. So that's that's one of those that's one of those issues. And when you're coming out of the military, they just need to do the reverse of what they do when they come out. And what I'm saying is there's a there's a command in the military called military uh, it's called TRADOC, Training and Doctrine Command. I think and Training and Doctrine Command does basically does this. They give you a test. And then they'll look at this test and they determine whether where you fit in the military. You took the test before. When I say it, you're going to remember the name. It's called the ASVAB test. And the ASVAB test, Armed Service Vocational Aptitude Battery, it basically determines, you know, whether or not you're going to be a signal officer dealing with communications, whether you're a journalist, whether you're logistics, what, whatever you're going to be, they, they will say this is the best fit for you. And a lot of times they're dead on the money. They got a they got one, they got a test that they can give you where you're not even speaking English. Listen to this, Leo. And it's it's called a defense language aptitude battery, where if you do well in this test, they'll send you to DLI, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, where you can become a linguist, where you can learn Farsi, where you can learn Greek, where you can learn any foreign language they have because they can they can determine based on aptitude of regular language english language they can foresee your aptitude of learning a foreign language and so all i'm all i'm saying is is that just think about what i just said they can determine whether or not you can speak mandarin chinese by how well you can understand regular english language now if they can do that then they can go, they can do the opposite. When you come out the military, they can say, okay, you were in logistics. Now you can end up doing securities, securities and exchange trading, you know, uh, in a civilian world. They should be able to give, they should be able to do exactly what they say is an obstacle. They should be able to create a program or have some data analysts address that. Because they say that we have a problem. And I'll give you a perfect example. We speak in acronyms when we're in the military. We're not trained to speak in acronyms before, but we're trained to speak in acronyms afterwards, you know, like MOS, Military Occupational Studies. You know, there's all these acronyms that we use in the military. And one of the things that ha we have to do when we come out, we have to almost become deprogrammed. When, when, when we come out of the military, and I think they can do that. There's two books I read recently that deals with uh, that deals with this concept. Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and it talks about individuals who have a proclivity of being child geniuses and so forth. You know, Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates. You know, and then they got people called. There's another book called Late Bloomers. Individuals by Rich Cargard, which talks about individuals who later in their life, 40s and 50s and 60s, they become very prominent, like Bill Walsh, 
you know, he was in his 40s. He was a high school football coach. He ended up watching a high school basketball game practice where a coach was actually doing a full court press, which was a defensive technique. He said, well, what if I ended up doing that in football? And that's how the West Coast offense was created which he ended up having Joe Montana, Steve Young, and Jerry Rice, you know, and that group win four Super Bowls. But this man actually came to prominence, and he has probably one of the most magnificent coaching trees there is in his late 40s. So I say that to say that you can have success at the beginning, mid part, or end of your life in that late bloomer section I think that is more analogous to helping individuals that come out of the military, you know, uh, matriculate back into civilian life with, uh, with success, if I should say. I, I love that idea of, of, you know, finding ways that we can incorporate them back into civilian life, what type of skills that they have, what their aptitudes are to let them know how it's transferable so they have some type of guidance to get back in. And then also it gives them a vehicle to communicate with employers uh, of, you know, how they can best be of value to the company. So, yeah, I absolutely love that, that idea. And I think it's beautiful. And one of the things that came up as you were sharing that was, um, man, I, I forgot the idea, but is there, Oh, you were talking about acronyms and how acronyms are used in the military. The other thing that I love about the military is that they also use sign language. Um, a lot of times, especially when they're going on covert operations, uh, they're using a lot of hand language. And I've discovered that babies can understand sign language a lot faster than they can the spoken word. And I was wondering if sign language is something you feel like we should all learn because it's a it seems to be an easier form of expression and it also dissipates the intensity of, of emotionality where there are there's nothing more frustrating than when you can't find the word to express what you're feeling and i feel like sign language might be a way through that do you have thoughts on that i got a direct thought on that I used to be stationed in Erzurum, Turkey, and my job was a supply sergeant. And Insulik Air Force Base was 800 miles away. And how we got everything from bacon, eggs, beer, Pop-Tarts, Captain Crunch cereal, was the all-mail unit, Playboy magazine, what have you. All of these things came by way of a C-130 airplane. And I had a, and I had a civilian local national, Sabat Shakir, God bless him. He, Sabatin was my, uh, my aide. And I remember my job every Thursday and Friday was to taxi with the paddles, the um, C-130 so it could land. And then we can get, you know, we can help unload with the forklift, get all our supplies and take them back to my barracks in Erzurum, Turkey. I remember one time I was in Chakmakli in Istanbul, Turkey, and the only person that was there was my 
civilian equivalent Sabatin. Sabatin spoke very, very bad English, broken English and so forth. But when I came back, I noticed all the supplies, you know, were 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 delivered and they were in our in our uh supply room. And I had asked Sabatin, and our conversations were kind of like a mixture because I speak broken Turkish, he speaks broken English and so forth. Plus, we know each other. So I said, Sabatin, how were you able to do this? And he said, Sweet Bay, I can I I I know how to work the paddles. He watched me work the paddles. He watched me taxi the aircraft in. Okay. Wow. And so, and so this is this is so I would say yes, it is important in reference to um I think sign language is 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 very important. I'm gonna give you a trivia question because I love watching Jeopardy and Alex Trebek. You want to know what college in Washington, DC employs more employees in the net in the four major sports, football, basketball, baseball, and uh hockey than any other other any sport agents, any other college, Georgetown, George Washington Catholic, American, but we have a college. Um, oh my goodness. There's a college here in Washington, DC, and I don't know why my, my mind's, uh, but it's a deaf college. Gallaudet. Thank oh yeah. You, Jesus. Yep. It's a, it's a tough word to pronounce. Yep. Yeah, but Gallaudet, the reason why Gallaudet does it is Gallaudet is the number one signing college in America, number one for um, hearing disabled. And if you watch football, you'll notice, or basketball, or even especially baseball, you'll see the coach talking with the glove over his face and so forth and so on. And what will happen is they will end up employing lip readers to actually steal signals and so forth. And baseball, they will do a hybrid signing. Like if they want to send someone from first base to second base, the third base and first base coaches, they have a hybrid form of sign language and so forth and so on. So yes, uh, and, and, and the thing about signals are a hand signal can be seen more readily than your voice can over over a period of over over a distance so that's one thing that that i do know because i've I've done many patrols and so forth and so on and in the military the reason why we do it is a different reason we have what we call noise discipline so when you're out doing a patrol and so forth and so on you'll be patting your head you might do counts and stuff to make sure that you got all members of your patrol you know in line so yes i do understand that and i i i i totally agree with it i love that uh teddy we got to wrap up here but is there anything any resources available to those uh who have you know exited the military that they may not be aware of that you want to let them know about and also, you know, let people know how they can get in contact, you know, with you and, and, and your, and the 22 
veterans project that you're a part of? Well, I'm, I'm officially officially launching, you know, July 1st, but I've always been helping individuals off to the side. And the, the name of my organization is called Profile Soldier. A profile in the military is a bad thing. It means that you you can't walk because your leg is hurt or your chest is hurt and so forth and so on. But the reason I call it Profile Soldier is, is this. Sometimes the individual feel that they can't get their dis they can't get their uh, benefits because they cannot prove what happened to them when they were in the military. But there's other ways to prove things other than your military records. There's like just your place where you was at duty at. That can that that that's proof in and of itself, as we say in the military. Rest after low quarter, the evidence speaks for itself. So my telephone number, I that is 202-210-6133-202-210-6133. And my email address is T-S-W-E-E-T-9-9 at hotmail.com, T-Sweet99 at hotmail.com. I have the hotmail due to the fact that Google's too much infiltrated. Nothing against Google, but at the same point in time, that that is an email address that I have. And I'm going to be having profile profilesoldier.com. And, and I give you that information as it maturates because of the website and all that is go, going live, you know, as I as I speak. But uh but I just like I said, I loved I I love the opportunity of being on with you to help my fellow uh, fellow uh, veteran brothers and sisters. And I say this, if I can, we just came through the debt ceiling issue, but if veterans aren't taken care of in a way in which is admirable, they're gonna have a problem recruiting veterans and for our active duty military, recruiting civilians, I should say. And if you're looking at the conflict in Russia, Ukraine, that can easily be a country invading us if our military and our manpower comes down. So we need to do better by our veterans because it's not just an issue for us, the veterans, the 6% that's protecting the 94, it's that 94%. If they get invaded and you don't have that 6% on standby that can take care of everybody, then it becomes an issue of national security. Man, that's a powerful way to look at it. I have never thought about 6% protecting the 94%. What a powerful image. And, uh, and, I, and I love that highlight of, you know, if we're not taking care of how our vets come home, it makes it harder to, you know, maintain and, uh, and even build on that 6%. So thank you so much, Ted. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, last question I want to ask is I ask this of all my guests. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Ted? What would I say to them? Yeah. I want to come at you differently. Like, I'm going to say, what would your Wikipedia say? And why I say that is that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because to get into heaven, it's not about what you do for yourself. It's what you do for others. And I would say that it would give that person pause. A lot of times I think that an individual, when they kill themselves, 
they they just don't have no one to talk to. They don't have nothing to run themselves off or nothing to run it by. But if they're by themselves, I would just like them to think and just to think of their life. And then if they thought of their life, I, I'm, I'm sure that they would think twice about what they're doing. I'm not trying to sit here and say that their, their plight isn't what it is, but I'm thinking that if someone was to honestly think about what they were going through and what they had come through already, I think they would live to fight another day. And that's all it is, you know, when you look at suicide and things of that nature. Can you get over that moment? Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the other phone numbers that are listed in all the show notes. Uh, if you're in the military, if you're a military veteran, there is help also listed in each and every single one of the show notes. Uh, if you live in Germany, the Philippines, wherever you are in the world, you can talk, chat, text. Uh, as Ted mentioned earlier, there's telehealth. You know, you can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo to get 10% off your first month. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you, Leo.